Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Kane Pittman, how's it going? It's going pretty well. It's uh, it's good to be back. We we I know we sort of discussed that this this might uh, eventually happen. So uh, well, we were just talking before we started recording. It feels like the Bucks have been waiting for a while, but eventually we're exactly where we thought we would be. Yeah, we joked that we hoped these teams would get to face each other in the Eastern Conference Finals, and then several months later, now we finally have it, and four lucky bounces off a rim later we get to see what we were hoping for. Yeah, I mean, really, uh, all year long. Uh, and, and obviously the Raptors started off, and they had that number one seed for the first month or so. But, I mean, these two teams have been the best teams in, in the East all year long. And uh, a lot of people had their opinions from the outside that uh, thought that, you know, Boston or Philly were, were going to have the star power and they were just going to roll through these teams. And, uh, I think people that have watched the Raptors closely and watched the Bucks closely uh, were able to bring a fairly strong argument as to why they thought that wasn't going to be the case. And, uh, you know, eventually, obviously, it took the Raptors a little bit longer, but they both got through. And the best two teams all year are going to square off for, for a place in the finals. Yeah, that's a good point. It's these two teams that played the best all season long, but... As we kind of try to analyze the game, we oftentimes look towards the star player at the top of the roster and, you know, the different high-end talent and try to project things. But sometimes the obvious answer is the correct one. And Milwaukee and Toronto have been better than the rest of the teams in the Eastern Conference. And now they finally get to face off against one another. Um, what have you kind of learned from the Bucks postseason run so far? Obviously, you guys haven't played too much, only nine games so far to get through your first two rounds. Is there anything that you learned kind of in the postseason that you didn't see during the regular season? I'm not sure if there was anything that I learned that I, I didn't see during the regular season, but uh, I think there was always going to be a question mark uh, on the team's ability to work through some adversity in the playoffs and how would they respond to that. Uh, this team has been incredible all year uh, after losses. They only lost back-to-back games once uh, through the entire uh, 82 game schedule. So all year long, they've responded to losses, uh, you know, fiercely and, and generally they win the next game by a lot. 
They go down uh, in game one against Boston. And what was their worst loss for the season? 22 points. They hadn't lost uh, by that much all year. So uh, I think that's what I was curious to see. Would this team be able to respond in the playoffs when under pressure? And, you know, when you think back to that game, obviously the Bucks work all year for home court advantage. They lose in, in such a blowout in game one and all of a sudden you go into game two thinking well if the Bucks don't win this uh, this could be over quickly and and everything that they worked for all year uh, could you know go to waste but uh, the way they were able to respond and really the way they were able to stay calm even after the loss at practice the next day no one was worried no one was concerned and then to bounce back and, and rattle off four four really convincing wins against a team that you know mentally uh, they had some demons against. Uh, it was very, very impressive. What kind of happened in that first game? Because that was really perplexing to me as someone who's been higher on the Bucks than most, I think, throughout the season. To see Boston come out with that kind of flamethrower effort in Game 1, was there anything that you know schematically changed from Game 1 to Game 2, or was it just a situation where Boston had everything rolling in Game 1 and you know the other four games were the kind of the more standard games of the series? Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of key adjustments that they made from game one to game two. But, uh, you know, heading into that game, the thing that uh, I wondered how they were going to respond was uh, the fact that the Bucks, towards the end of the regular season, even though they were still battling for that first seed, they were sort of in cruise control for a long way, uh, you know, leading into the playoffs. Uh, then they have that, that first-round series against Detroit where they didn't need to get out of second gear at all. Uh, against the Pistons, and then they have another five days off before game one in Boston. So uh, I, I did wonder how this team was going to respond when they come up, up against a legitimate, you know, playoff team that was always going to hit them hard, uh, you know, in the first quarter. And I just think that the Bucks were caught off guard, having not played, you know, competitive basketball for a long time. Now, obviously, they have a week off before the Toronto game, and it's going to be interesting to see how they respond from that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in terms of adjustments they made, uh, I think the, the key adjustment was uh, they went to switching defense right uh, from tip-off in game two. I, I, that's not something they've done a lot all season. They've rarely uh, switched on defense. They were switching one through four. And to me, this is their most dangerous defensive scheme. This is a scheme that uh, they can really uh, be effective with. They have the, the individual personnel to do that when you think of Eric Bledsoe. Uh, Giannis, Chris Middleton, uh, all these guys are, are really terrific one-on-one uh, -on -one defenders. So um, that was the, that was really uh, the, the key to the Bucks uh, slowing down Kyrie Irving. Uh, some of these other guys, obviously Jason Tatum, Gordon Hayward, really had a terrible series shooting the ball. And the other thing was that they brought Nico Miritich into the into the starting lineup a little bit uh, more size, obviously a, a really terrific shooter and uh, and an underrated defender. Yeah, you know, he's someone who gets kind of this reputation for being a horrible defender, but that to me, when I watch him on the floor, I don't see that. He's pretty athletic. He's obviously pretty long and pretty lengthy. He's not someone who is going to lock down guys individually, but when you talk about, like, a team defender in a decent scheme, I think Nico can do a pretty solid job. Um, this is something I asked you about kind of on Twitter before this podcast. Um, do you think Nico is going to continue to start – during this series, and is there any chance that that kind of switches as the series goes along and Malcolm Brogdon starts to work himself back into game shape? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it's something I've definitely been thinking about more, and maybe 
you know, my, my, my sort of theory is starting to change a little bit. Uh, we're not going to know. We're at Bucks practice today. Um, there, you know, I mean, Bud's not going to give away the, the lineups at, at this early stage, but uh, we'll find out before tip. My feeling is that Miritich is probably going to start game one. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that Brogdon came back only in game five, his first game in in uh, just over two months. He played 16 minutes, and he looked really good, actually. Uh, but uh, to throw him into the starting lineup seems a little bit premature. I think they would probably like to uh, continue to slowly build his minutes. And the other thing is I just think Bud, <coughs> I just think Bud really trusts uh, Miritich uh, you know, defensively as well. I, I do think that the difference between the Celtics and the Toronto Raptors is that he's probably going to be guiding Danny Green. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum uh, during the series uh, in, in round two were really trying to take Miritich off the dribble, probably thinking that they would have the quickness to, to get around Miritich. But I, I thought that Miritich did a really good job. He's actually got quicker feet than you think. Uh, he was able to put a body on those guys and sort of direct them into the area that he wanted to. And we know the Bucks and Brook Lopez and Giannis sort of roaming around the paint there. Uh, so if, if you don't get a really quick early step, you're going to be forced into a tough shot. And I thought Miritich did a great job of that. Uh, the problem with, with Danny Green, I, I don't see that he's going to try and take Miritich off the dribble as much as he's going to be running baseline to baseline around the perimeter and, and spotting up for threes, which the Bucks at times have been susceptible to giving up threes. So... Uh, I, I do think that Danny Green's going to be down on the list of guys that Bud is really worried about. But at the same time, if he can find his shot, uh, you know, he's a guy that, as you know, in the, in the playoffs and through his career can shoot you know, a really high percentage, and that could be a problem for the Bucks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you said you think Nico's going to start the series. Who do you think is kind of in the Bucks rotation? They've been running a little bit deeper rotation in the first two series so far, and I think a lot of that just has to do with the way it's played out and not really having your backs against the wall yet. Um, besides that starting five, and you know, obviously Brogdon is in there as well, who else do you think gets playing time for this team? Yeah, so if you had the, the, the starting five that they had uh, in that Celtics series, so obviously Bledsoe, uh, Middleton, Miritich, Giannis, and Lopez. You had Brogdon to that uh, to make uh, six guys. Uh, and the other three guys that are going to play, uh, George Hill, who you know, had a terrific, yeah, really a terrific end to the regular season and, and I guess got more spotlight in, in the second round against Boston. But George Hill is going to play. Uh, Ersan Ulyasova is a, is a favorite uh, of Bud. Obviously played with him before. And then Pat Connaughton is the other guy who's, who's been playing major minutes and actually played uh, the third uh, most minutes out of the Bucks uh, in the second round behind only Giannis and Middleton. So Connaughton is another guy uh, that, that Bud really likes. So it, it's kind of unusual, I guess, how evenly spread this Bucks rotation is, but it's been a, a real theme all year. Giannis well down on his minutes from last season, Chris Middleton the same, and Bud really likes to share it around, and he trusts his bench as much as any coach in the league. So I think the Bucks are going to continue to run with a nine-man rotation, which is going to be interesting uh, when you look at the Raptors only uh, you know, <laughs> running seven guys in, in Game 7. Yeah, it's it's funny. I thought I was a Pat Connaughton fan until I saw the numbers he's uh, doing as far as minutes and the way he's playing in this series. Was, am I wrong in thinking, wasn't he out of the rotation for a period earlier this season, or do I have that messed up? 
No, it's it's sort of it's it's been interesting. Bud is a guy that that uh, as the season has worn on has sort of lent on different guys, and and the Bucks have truly been a team that play one through fifteen. Now, obviously, you're not going to play you know thirteen guys or the active active guys in in the playoffs, but. Um, you know, there was a long period of time where DJ Wilson was a major part of the rotation. Sterling Brown was, I mean, Sterling Brown started game one and now he finds himself sort of out of the rotation completely. So this is something we've seen a lot. Pat Cotton did go through a stretch where he didn't play at all, but late in the season and, and the Bucks had a lot of injuries heading into the playoffs. So, uh, that opened the doors, opened the door for some guys and Pat Cotton was definitely, uh, one of those guys that, that really took that opportunity. And Bud, you know, anytime, uh, I asked Bud about Pat Connor and he gets a big smile on his face and talks about his energy and his rebounding and all these things he does. So uh, again, he's uh, he's another one of those those favourites of Bud, and I, I think that it's it's really hard for me to see him slipping out of the rotation. I think you should expect the Bucks are going to run uh, nine deep. Oh wow! So yeah, that will be something definitely to watch, especially as the series goes on. Um, I think Toronto will probably start eight to begin. I think it will be the seven that we saw play in game seven. And then Norman Powell, you hope that he can kind of turn it around here against Milwaukee so you don't have to just go so barren to start and you don't have to rely only on Fred Van Vliet and Serge Ibaka. And to be frank, Van Vliet, who went 0-5 during game seven, so it's not as if you feel super confident about him. But it's certainly a depth advantage for the Bucks right now. Um, do you think that... Giannis is going to kind of increase that workload as the series goes on. Obviously, he didn't have to against Boston and certainly against Reggie Jackson and the Detroit Pistons, but do you think that he's someone who will feel comfortable playing 40 minutes a game if he has to? Oh, I mean, Giannis, will play. Giannis is a guy that, that doesn't like coming to the bench. Uh, yeah, even if the Bucks are winning uh, the game by by 20-plus points, you can see that he's uh, really frustrated when, when Bud sort of takes him out, so... I mean, he'll play all 48 if, if, if Bud let him. But uh, I think that you know, we've seen that Bud, uh, as I sort of mentioned, trusts his bench so much that he would like to keep Giannis under 35. But in Game 3 in Boston, which was you know, a really pivotal game in, in the series, Giannis played uh, 39 minutes, which was almost a season high for him. It's been so rare that he's played uh, those type of minutes, but that game was in the balance you know, in the second half there, and I think that's your indication that if this series is close, then Bud is going to play his best player. But, uh, you know, I, I think that he would like to keep the minutes down. But, yeah, listen, if it gets to the fourth quarter or in the conference finals, then you can expect Giannis and Milton are going to be playing major minutes. Is there anything we talked about Nikola Mirotic on Danny Green? Is there any kind of matchup that you see either offensively or defensively for Milwaukee? that you think is either, one, you know, very exploitable from Milwaukee's side, or two, kind of just intriguing that you're kind of waiting to see how it plays out? Well, I'm interested because in one matchup that I am sort of interested in is the uh, is the Gasol and Brook Lopez because obviously Marc Gasol was not around. These uh, two teams finished their season series, uh, you know, really early in the regular season, so Marc Gasol wasn't around, and, and neither was Miritich, but I think it's interesting. I, I do really like... Uh, this matchup from the Bucks' point of view, uh, there was some concern with the Celtics series that Al Horford was going to play uh, Lopez off the floor. That didn't really eventuate, but I, I think this is a t- difficult matchup for Gasol, and the reason I, I believe that is because uh, when you're when you're defending Joel Embiid, I, I think that you can get away. Uh, when I look at the Sixers, I think you can get away 
with uh, giving Joel Embiid a little bit of space in the perimeter. Now, he can hit the three, and he will shoot that shot, but I, I think if that's the shot that Embiid is shooting, then you're happy to let him fire away from three. So I think Gasol was able to give Embiid a little bit more space. Now, on, on the Bucks side of, the side of things, if you're Gasol, you can't afford to give Lopez any room on the perimeter. Uh, I mean, and, and not just at the perimeter, beyond the perimeter, Lopez is going to fire away. And I think for the Bucks, that's a big bonus. If you get Gasol uh, on the perimeter and, and not really sure where he wants to be defensively, uh, then that opens the door for... Uh, Giannis and Bledsoe, the two guys that the Bucks really thrive on when they're getting into the paint. So I, I'm not sure what the Raptors do to counter that. Even if it is a Barker that's on the floor, I still think it's a similar problem. So I'm interested to see from Toronto's point of view what they do in terms of defending Lopez. I, I think it's he's presented a obviously a problem for for teams right uh, right throughout the uh, right throughout the season, but I'm interested to see what Nick Nurse does with, with Lopez uh, defensively. In regards to Serge Ibaka on him, I think Ibaka is you know, going to do a decent job out there. He's mobile enough that I'm not as worried about him defensively. What the problem is, is Toronto's been so thin so far this postseason and needed Ibaka to play so many power forward minutes is you can't really put him at center in order to slow Lopez down. So if he's playing power forward, obviously that limits the amount of minutes he can play at the center position. So that's something to watch. Um, on the other end of the court, I do think that Mark should be able to score a little bit in the pick and pop game. Al Horford, you know, made quite a few looks from three and he was one of the lone successes of the Boston offense in that series. He shot 5.6 three point attempts and hit 46% of his looks in the series. And, you know, that's something where you talked about kind of that switching can help stop that. Do you, what can Milwaukee do from that perspective in order to, kind of slow down the pick-and-pop game and try to limit uh, the Raptors' center's looks and from Serge either in the mid-range or from Gasol from three. Yeah, that's that's interesting because when I was watching the Celtics uh, series unfold, in my mind, I'm like, you need Al Horford to shoot the ball. You want him shooting the ball more than he was if you're a Boston fan. <clears throat> that's not his natural game. He didn't feel comfortable shooting the ball as much as he should have, even though he was shooting that really good percentage. Uh, he didn't take all the shots he should have. So uh, I'm curious to see whether Marcus Gasol uh, is going to be aggressive enough uh, to take those shots that are there all the time. Uh, you know, when I look at the uh, when I look at the the stats from the second round against Philadelphia, Gasol plays 35 minutes a game and only gets up eight eight, eight field goal attempts a game. <clears throat> He's probably going to get a lot more chances to shoot uh, from that range now. I do think that the Bucks, to some extent, are going to be like, okay, well, if Marcus Sol is going to be the guy that's going to need to put up 20 to 25 points to beat us, then we're probably okay with that. But I do think it's going to be a little bit from both when you think about that. Gasol is going to have to be aggressive. He's not going to get a lot of looks in the in the paint because the Bucks just defend the paint better than anyone in the league. But if he gets those open shots, I think he has to be prepared to shoot them. And if he not, if he starts to knock those down. That's when the Bucks have to think about making a change. That's a great point. He's someone where, you know, he's kind of like Al Horford, where their natural instinct is to keep everybody moving and keep the play moving, pass it along. But when you're getting that open pick-and-pop shot, you have to shoot it. And you made a great point about the Bucks being willing to let Marcus all beat them on however many points. It's 
you know, he's not going to want to shoot a lot of times, and it's almost this kind of guilty feeling of, can I shoot another one? And if that's what the defense is giving you, he's going to have to. So that's something to watch to me is, one, not how well Marcus Gasol is shooting from three, but simply how many shot attempts he's getting up and if he's going to make the Bucks defense switch from their conservative kind of keep everything inside and make opponents beat you from the outside, if he's going to make them switch that style up or if they're going to be able to continue to play their conservative deep drop scheme. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And this is, if, if you're Toronto, you, you have to uh, tell Gasol to be aggressive in those situations. And the same thing for Ibaka when he's out there. We know he's a guy that, that can shoot from the outside. Uh, so those two guys, it's going to be pretty key at they're not generally guys, as you sort of said, and I agree, Gasol is very similar to Al Horford. At this point in his career, he's not really a guy that, that's going to put up massive scoring nights, but he may have the opportunity to, and if he sort of bails out the Bucks' uh, defense and, and looks to give the ball up when, when he could be shooting, uh, that's a win for Milwaukee. Uh, obviously, the first one, I think, is almost a throwaway game, but the other three matchups, is there anything that you kind of learn from watching those? I know the teams have added either Gasol or Miritich um, in either example. But did we learn anything from the regular season matchups? Well, I think the big thing we learned is that we probably know what the matchups are going to be, uh, you know, from those two games. So, you know, Chris Middleton really spent a high percentage of the possessions defending Kawhi Leonard. I think the Bucks feel really confident with that matchup or really comfortable or as comfortable as you can be with a player as good as Kawhi. Uh, I think the big thing with Middleton that sometimes people forget is that Kawhi Leonard uh, obviously has great size, 6'7", uh, super long, uh, but Middleton's 6'8", and uh, I think that sometimes gets forgotten at how big Middleton actually is. Uh, he has the size to be able to contest that shot uh, and, and, and generally has done a pretty good job on Leonard. So I think that's the one thing that you know, we know is going to probably happen, Middleton on Leonard. And then the other one is, which is a really fun matchup. I, I just, I really cannot wait to watch Giannis on Siakam. I, I think Siakam had you know, some, of, some of his better games for the season against the Bucks. Uh, obviously, he's coming to his own, you know, in the playoffs even more so. But uh, I guess the only question with him is the calf. And if he is, uh, you know, feeling 100% healthy, typically cars are a, a tough injury to get over and the fact that uh the, the raptors went seven games and he had to play such a, a heavy role in those games to, to help the bucks uh help the raptors get through um is probably not ideal he probably would have liked a little bit more rest uh and you know when you look that he shot 27 percent uh from three well down on, on what he shot during the regular season i wonder how much the calf has to do with that uh i think that you know, Siakam is such a key player in this series and, and paces the Raptors' offense the way they want to play the game, gets out in transition, and he's, he's a you know, really difficult player to stop. So uh, they're the two matchups. Uh, I think the big, big, biggest takeaways uh, we can take from the regular season. And the other obvious one is, can Kyle Lowry uh, figure it out against Eric Bledsoe? And not just Eric Bledsoe, but George Hill as well, who has uh, just been terrific defensively since the Bucks picked him up. Yeah, George Hill harassed Kyle Lowry pretty bad when he was at Indiana in the seven-game series that the Raptors had. That was a 2-7 matchup. Um, going back to your point about Pascal Siakam, for him, it's tough, for me at least, to kind of decipher that right when that calf injury happened, the 76ers were switching Embiid onto him from Tobias Harris. So I think it will be interesting to watch. I, 
I kind of struggled to find out what percentage of Siakam's struggles were due to the calf injury and what percentage were just due to the change in defensive matchup. And, you know, Giannis is more like Joel Embiid than he is Tobias Harris. Obviously, he's not quite as, as big as Embiid and not quite as strong. But he presents a lot of the same kind of matchup problems. And Siakam had a good game against the Bucks in their earlier matchups, but I think a lot of that had to go with his three-point shot falling, which I'm just not sure if he's going to be able to rely on to the same extent against Milwaukee kind of moving forward in this series. Yeah, it, this was you know something I was discussing earlier uh, on radio here in Milwaukee that uh, I expect that the Bucks are going to uh, dare Siakam to shoot. Uh, I think that uh, they understand that he's at his most dangerous when he's getting downhill, and he's he's so athletic and and uh, you know turned into a really crafty finisher that I, I think that even if it's Giannis guiding him, then I think he's going to be giving him some space and daring him to shoot the ball. Now, uh, if he shoots the ball as well as he did, as you said in that one game, and even to to his uh, regular season percentage, if he's shooting 38 percent, maybe uh, closer to 40 percent, then the Bucks again, like I said, with Marcus are going to be forced to to change what they're trying to do. But uh, from the defensive point uh, standpoint with Giannis, uh, he's so dangerous when he's able to be that floater and fly over, uh, you know, from the, from, the, from the weak side for, the, for those blocks. So that's what Giannis is going to want to do. Uh, it's going to be up to Siakam to try and uh, hit a few shots and get that respect from Giannis and, and get him defending him a little bit closer. So uh, I think these Siakam is really a key uh, to the series, but maybe... Uh, it starts with him hitting some outside shots. Yeah, uh, I think one of the things for him is he's a pretty good corner three-point shooter, but you know he's been a pretty abysmal above the break all season. He's been, I think, 26%, 27% on above the big break three. So that's just something that, you know, he already took a massive step with his three-point percentage and the ability to shoot it in the corner. Uh, it's a little bit greedy to ask him to also add it above the break. So hopefully he adds that next season. Um is there any chance that the Bucks kind of try what the or what the 76ers did, where they put Brooke Lopez on Pascal Siakam and put Giannis on Gasol in order to kind of try to stop that pick-and-pop game if that is hurting them throughout the series? Or do you think that they're going to try to kind of stick to their guns a little bit more? Yeah, well, it's it's funny. My expectation is that the Bucks are going to start this series – uh, playing that base defense, as you mentioned already, the, the drop scheme and the pick and roll, uh, to start the series. I, I think that that's what they've done all season. Obviously, they were forced to make an adjustment, uh, in the, uh, in the Celtic series, but I think that they will go back to what they've known, uh, what has been successful for them, uh, through the, uh, through the regular season. So that's what I think. But now that we've seen that Bud is not going to mess around, that if it's not working, he's going to switch it up and, and they will start switching a bit more on defense, and uh, I think that that could certainly be the change they make. Uh, the problem with the, the drop, screen, drop scheme, and it's going to be interesting to see, is that they do have a tendency, not only in the pick-and-pop game, to give up shots, but in general give up uh, mid-range jump shots, which is by design. That's what they're trying to do. But when you have a guy like Kawhi Leonard who shoots a mid-range shot as well as anyone, uh, if he's able to get around that pick and get downhill and, and Brooke, Brooke Lopez is sort of stepping a, you know, a few steps away from him and, and Leonard can walk into a, a rhythm mid-range shot, then that could also uh, force a little bit of a change. So it's going to be interesting to see how the sort of chess pieces move in the, in the first game or so here. 
Yeah, you know, I, I'm an analyst guy, and I think it makes sense during the regular season to say we're going to force mid-rangers and play the math game, and eventually the math will swing in our favor. When you get into a seven-game series and a guy hits four mid-range pull-up shots on you, it's a little bit different, and it takes a little bit more discipline as a defense to try to stick with that scheme, and sometimes it's not even smart if you have a guy who's an elite mid-range shooter like Kawhi to stick with it. So that's something that I think is going to be interesting kind of moving forward. Um, one thing you mentioned was Chris Middleton on Kawhi, and I think you're absolutely right. He does a great job handling Kawhi. Um, what can the Bucks do if, say, Kawhi gets going here a little bit, what will they do to slow him down? I, I've watched quite a few Milwaukee games, and I haven't seen a ton of doubling out of you guys. What kind of will the game plan be? Would it be maybe to switch Giannis on him for a little bit, or what would be the plan B if Middleton isn't working early on? Yeah, I think that Giannis is the the absolute emergency uh, blanket if, if things are, are going a little bit haywire. But uh, I think you sort of touched on it. The Bucks generally trust their guys uh, to go one-on-one. I, I do think that it's going to be interesting to see, and this is something that uh, we saw in the Celtics series, and this was something that I really thought uh, you know, cost the, the Celtics a series in a lot of ways, uh, was Kyrie Irving over-dribbling the ball uh, and, and trying to do it all himself. Now, uh, clearly, Kawhi Leonard was incredible in Game 7 against the Sixers, but I will say, if he's shooting that many shots, and, and obviously it was you know, more than uh, yeah, even a high-volume game for him, but you know, if, if Kawhi Leonard is shooting uh, at really, really high volume and, and doing a lot of dribbling and trying to work through the defense by himself, then... Uh, I think that plays right into the Bucks' hands, as good as he is. I think the key to this Bucks' defense and getting them moving uh, is is ball movement. And the, the Raptors have got a lot of different guys that can hurt you. And I, I think the key is uh, not uh, letting Kawhi Leonard just over-dribble the ball and, 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 and look for his own shot too much. I think he has to try and get the other guys going because that's when you can get the Bucks scrambling a little bit and, and have them on the back foot. No, that's a great point. And... The Raptors were so reliant on Kawhi Leonard in that series that you wonder the sustainability of it, and if you can't get big performances from other players, you're just not going to win a series against a team as good as Milwaukee. And in order to have big games from other players, you have to keep them involved. So that's something that you'll obviously want to keep an eye on. Um, offensively for the Bucks, is there anything that you think besides, obviously, you know, Giannis is going to get his. He's going to average between 25 to 30 and do it relatively efficiently. Is there anybody else that you kind of think that's what the Bucks need to consistently do to generate offense? Well, it's all about pace of, pace of play for the Bucks. It's it's uh, sort of been the case all year. Uh, if you can slow the Bucks down and get them in the half court, then you give yourself a chance. Now, <laughs> the Bucks have through the year been such a juggernaut offensively that it's easier said than done, and particularly when you have the guys like Eric Bledsoe and Giannis, uh, who are such uh, you know dominant players in transition. But that's certainly the key to slowing down Milwaukee. You need to get them in the half court. That starts in, in a couple of ways. Your defense has to be disciplined and they need to really make sure they get back and sort of create that wall to stop Giannis uh, just just tearing away to the basket. The second thing is you need to make shots and. Uh, if you're Toronto and you can make a, a reasonable percentage of your shots, then it's harder for the Bucks to get going when, you, when you're taking the ball out of the basket a lot. So uh, the Bucks generally start their offense 
and it sort of feels like a cliche, and this is what all the good teams say, but it, it's absolutely true for the Bucks. Their offense starts on the defensive end. They create turnovers, and if you miss shots and allow the Giannis to get a running start and the rebound, which he does so well, uh, they're going to they're going to cause chaos. And, and these guys run hard to the corners. Uh, they get out in transition because they know that Giannis is so unselfish and he's going to find them. So if you allow the Bucks to get out in transition, uh, and, and then it, it's going to be really tough, and it's it's hard to stop them scoring. Well, and especially as many three pointers as you guys force teams to take it kind of lends itself to those long rebounds that ignite the fast break better than most other teams. Um, with the Bucks aren't a great offensive rebounding team, Toronto's not really a great offensive rebounding team. Could you see this game um, kind of going, or I'm sorry, the series with both teams kind of just punting the offensive rebounding category in order, in order to try to get back and make an attempt to limit fast break points? Yeah, I could. Uh, I don't think that's a, that's a bad call at all because... Uh, I, I think that that's been a key for the Bucks all year. If you, what they do so well is slowing down uh, the opposition and, and, and getting set and stopping them getting into the paint. So it, it's not generally something that the Bucks do a lot. You sort of touched on the fact that, uh, and it goes both ways. The Bucks shoot so many threes that they they do get uh, uh, some long rebounds, which gives them second chance opportunities. But they don't really hit the glass hard in an attempt to to get those tough offensive rebounds. In fact, Eric Bledsoe is one of the guys that does it better than anyone on the team. Ersan and he's sober. He's always had a nose for, for the offensive glass. But uh, I, I don't think that's a bad call at all because, you know, if you're Toronto, you can't afford to to have guys uh, hunting the offensive glass and then allowing sort of, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a four-on-two or whatever it may be in transition because you're just not going to – you're just going to give up points. And uh, – I don't think you can give up easy points to this Bucks team. And much like uh, the, the Bucks will try and stop the Raptors, I already touched on uh, Siakam being a yeah, real terror in, in, in transition himself. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And it's going to be interesting to see kind of how the teams do that. And one, you know, if Serge Ibaka playing more power forward has any impact on that. The Raptors, like I said, haven't cl- crashed the glass all season. And the Bucks are a pretty good defensive rebounding team. But you just wonder if now that the Raptors are running a lineup that they haven't all season, if things change a little bit. But for the most part, you know, I agree that the plan is going to be for both teams to give up on the offensive glass, stop transition at all costs, because, you know, even a few quick offensive buckets might mean something, uh, might mean the difference for these teams who are so good defensively. Um, Is there anything that you think is what to watch in this series as far as, like, if there's an area that the Raptors win or that the Bucks win, you think it could go a long way towards winning this series? Yeah, I, I think the big thing uh, when I look at, and, and I think the Bucks are going to be the favorites coming in, I, I think home court is, is a big part of that. I think the way that they're sort of uh, being able to find contributors right down uh, the rotation to this point puts them in a really great position. Uh, but if you're Toronto, you, you have to find contributors offensively. I know that Toronto is a really good defensive team, and they've got some terrific uh, individual defenders, much like the Bucks. But they have to find a way to find support for Kawhi Leonard and, and, and Siakam because, you know, when I was watching that that Philadelphia series, I pre before that series started, I, I thought Toronto were going to win at five, maybe six at the most. I just thought that they had 
uh, too much firepower for the Sixers. And I thought they played together. I thought they were a team that really plays well together. I didn't really see that in that series. And, and you know, when, when you look at, at guys like uh, Danny Green, I mean, he shot 37% from three, but 37% uh, overall uh, is not great at all. Van Vliet, you already spoke about, at 12% from the field. Uh, Kyle Lowry, only 25% from three. Uh, Siakam, 27 points, uh, 27% from three himself. Ibaka, 21%. I mean, they need to find a way to make shots. They need to hit open shots, and they need to give Kawhi Leonard some support. I'm not sure uh, you know, if Kawhi Leonard is going to last in this series if it goes a long, a long way and he's playing 40 minutes a night and getting up 25 shots. That's a lot to ask when you think of what he's going to have to do on the other end, whether it be guard Giannis or whether, or whether it be guard uh, Middleton. It's, it's, it's going to be a really, really tough ask. For the Raptors, that's the key for me. They need to find guys to contribute. And, and it starts with, uh, like we said, Gasol being aggressive, Kyle Lowry finding a way to get over his uh, problems with Bledsoe and George Hill. Uh, and that's, that's where they're going to give themselves a chance. Yeah, it's funny we break down kind of what the Bucks can counter with if the Raptors are getting a lot of pick-and-pop threes and different ways that the Raptors can try to slow down Giannis. And a lot of this series is simply going to come down to the Bucks force you to take a lot of jumpers. The Raptors haven't made a lot of jumpers so far, despite being a good shooting team. And if Toronto doesn't make the open three-point shots that they get, they're just not going to win this series. And it's really kind of reductive to say and really simplified, but the bottom line is is Milwaukee forces so many jump shots, and you're just not going to score either at the free throw line or at the rim. They're ranked top in uh, shots allowed at the rim and top at opponent field goal percentage at the rim. So in order to score, you're going to have to consistently hit shots from the perimeter. That hasn't been something Toronto has done well this postseason, despite shooting well all regular season. So as, basis, as basic as it sounds, it might just come down to you know, how many open jumpers can Fred Van Vliet make? Yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes you want to give an answer that's more complicated than that, but the Raptors beat the Bucks uh, at 504 early in this season, and they did that hitting open threes. Uh, when you think of that game, uh, you know, obviously Siakam, we already spoke about, played really well. Barker felt like he couldn't miss a shot. Uh, Danny Green, the, the whole way down the, the starting lineup, I, I think in the end, the starters contributed. Uh, this is off the top of my head. I think it was around 118 of the 123 points or something ridiculous like that. They could not miss. So uh, that's a that's a secret to beating the Bucks. You're probably going to get some open looks. You got to hit them though, because 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 if, you, if you're missing those open looks and the Bucks are able to get those rebounds, as I said, uh, it's tough to slow that sort of avalanche down uh, that the Bucks have been throwing you. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so this series, rather than kind of pick the amount of games. What do you think the percentage of each each team's chance of victory is? So uh, I'm assuming you're thinking Bucks right now. Um, what percentage chance do you give the Raptors, or what percentage chance do you think the Bucks are going to win this series? Yeah, I mean, I, I lean towards the Bucks, and a big reason for that is the home court. I, I think we spoke uh, all season when, when I spoke with you about what that meant and how hard the team should go for home court. Uh, I, I think it's hard to gauge during the regular season how important it is, but... Uh, you know, as we've seen now, we're talking about two teams that play really well at home, two teams that have a really uh, good home court advantage. So, uh, you know, for the Raptors that just play a game seven at home in, in a series that, that swung, you know, pretty wildly outside of a couple of games, swung pretty wildly with home court. Uh, you have to wonder if, if the Raptors get through that, that game seven is in Philadelphia. So I am, uh, leaning towards the park. I, I look, I, 
they're just playing so well. Uh, and again, my concerns are for the Raptors that the, that their, their role players can't get going. I, I probably I'm probably leaning seventy thirty bucks, um, but. Uh, you know, I, I do see a potential that this could be a long series, but again, I think a lot of that is on the Raptors. Yeah, I think it's reasonable right now. It's seventy, thirty bucks, sixty, forty bucks, around that range. Um, they're playing better basketball right now. I think if you just look at the teams and kind of go player by player, it's a little bit more even. But when we just talked about what mattered in the first two series and the team that's played better all season, and that's been Milwaukee. They've posted a crazy net rating. They have the most wins in the league. So I, it's definitely the Raptors are heading in as a minus 330 underdog, according to Vegas, and I think it's pretty warranted. The Milwaukee Bucks have the advantage, but obviously when you get to kind of the Eastern Conference Finals, as long as LeBron's not in it for Toronto, it's anyone's game. So um, it will be interesting to watch here. It will be a fun storyline to see kind of Giannis versus Kawhi and where they rank as far as in the top leaderboard, especially with – LeBron kind of taking a step back, I think, for the first time in forever. The best player in the world title is available. So it will be fun to watch. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Kane, thank you so much for coming on, man. Yeah, no problem. I will say, when they were, people were always talking about the star power and why they, they doubted the Bucks and the Raptors. Uh, you already touched on the matchup. you got Giannis and, and Kawhi, the two best players in the East. So if you want to talk about star power, they're there right now. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. And I think either way... Whoever wins, I think it's going to be cool to see the Milwaukee or Toronto in the finals. Yeah, definitely something that will be, I think, Milwaukee's first in, what, like 45, 50 years, if I'm correct, and Toronto's obviously first appearance in franchise history. Yeah, no, it's going to be great. It should be a lot of fun, but uh, I'm glad we got to, I'm glad we got to hang out again. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. All right. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.